Hello, hello, hello. Okay, sorry, we haven't been recording. All this was off the tape, so okay. Let's uh, let's. Oh, there's nothing wrong. It's just I find it amusing. Like Mike Doty and Mark Sullivan are like great, but they're like keeping track. I got like fifty percent of my guesses right. Okay, okay. It's one way to live your life. It's fine. It's okay. Okay, questions on what we covered content this morning. Questions from this morning's content that aren't related to the blanks. I was wondering um, about uh, the leaders did not leave Jerusalem, but the rest of the people were scattered. Is there a reason why the leaders were able to stay? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Everyone, who, who are the people Jesus told to go out into all the world? The disciples, and they're the ones who stay behind in Acts. No, no, what I reason I say it's interesting is because Acts is narrative, and so without the narrator telling us what to make of it, you want to be a little cautious in what conclusions you come to. And I've heard readings of the book of Acts that it's the failure of the apostles. They didn't go. Jesus told them to go, and then they didn't go, so then God had to raise up persecution to make them go. But actually, as you point out, they still stay. Um, and others know they know what they're doing. They're, they're running the church from Jerusalem. I don't know why they did what they did. Perhaps my guess would be they hadn't given up on Israel yet. If you look at Peter's second sermon um, in, in Acts, he seems to be offering the kingdom to Israel still. No, check, check out Acts th- 4, I think. It sounds, it sounds sort of like you saying it's not too late. If you guys repent and believe, Jesus might come back. He says something sort of like that, and I'm guessing they weren't ready to give up on their nation of Israel yet. They, they're sticking behind because they wanted to, uh, they wanted to um, convert their countrymen. But let me, yeah, it's Acts uh, four. Yeah, um, where is it? No, it's three. Sorry, um, Acts three. His sermon starts in verse eleven. Um, you know, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses and by his name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And he jumped down to verse 17. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is the Christ should suffer and thus be fulfilled repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord and that he may send the christ appointed for you jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which god spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago i haven't studied this enough to know exactly what peter's promising here but it sure does seem like he's thinking if you guys still could get on board maybe some other stuff will happen now, they don't ultimately. They get a couple thousand people added to the church, but Israel nationally does not repent and believe. So there's a sense in which, okay, we can talk about what would have happened. But they're still holding on hope for Israel. Eventually, the, the center of the New Testament church is going to move to Antioch. Um, and that's when the, the Jewish-centricness of it shifts. But no, I don't, I don't know why. Anyone have any other theories on why the leaders stayed in Jerusalem? Um, we have a hand in the bag. Well, it's just a theory, but I think when we look at um, <clears throat> the Jerusalem Council, 
in Acts 15. Mm. And then when we look at what happens after that, we start to see the apostles start to, to move out. Because when Paul confronts um, uh, Peter for his waywardness, uh, as far as you know, tr- withdrawing himself from the Jews, when God had given them a clear vision of whatever I've called clean in Acts 10, mm. I believe it's Acts 10, you know, whatever I've cleansed, don't call unclean. And that was a clear signal to Peter that this gospel is to go to the Gentiles, but they didn't move and act on it right away. And I think we also have to uh, look at to establish the authority of the apostles. When, when um, Paul comes to Jerusalem to the uh, council and they hear it and James gives his, you know, um, as you taught on earlier, you know, James gives his decision that these things should not be laid on the uh, Gentiles as far as, the keeping of kosher law and all these other things, but that they restrain themselves from blood and that they be willing to give to the poor. Right. And so I think when we look at that, that's, that's that establishing the apostles. Mm. And after that, I think we start to see God move them out. But right. I think they had to be established at first. No, that's, that's a good point that the church in the early days when they're settling some of those disputes, having a place to go that was the center of the church was helpful. You know, what's the center of the church today? I mean, Catholics would say the Vatican, but I mean, you know, what? there is no center. Like, where do you go? You know, um, and so for a, for a time in the first century, Jerusalem and then Antioch was a place to go to settle an issue to get answers to things. That's, that's good insight. Okay, next question. Other questions? Serena needs a microphone. Or does she? That seems like it will tie in with your eschatology tonight because isn't the prerequisite for God coming back? National repentance of Israel. Well, you're you're you should come tonight and ask that tonight. <laughs> you should get in front of the person who's going to ask me about the uh, vaccine and the mark of the beast and ask me that question tonight. Um, now, I, I believe Israel's national repentance um, takes place really, really suddenly and really in the twelfth hour. So, um, if Zechariah is right. There's a siege laid on them. They're just about down and out. The wall's been breached. And then they'll look on him and they've pierced. Then they'll grieve for him like they grieve for an only son. And then God will come from heaven and fight for them. So um, there's a sense in which, yeah, that happens before the Lord comes and fights for him. But it's right before the Lord comes and fights for him. How close is his offer to the Jews to the bad things that are going to happen with Rome. Could, is it possible that the, they're seeing the writing on the wall as far as things are getting bad for the Jews? Or do you think it's just he's like, guys, the Messiah came. We've been waiting how long and you I missed it. I think it's it. more B. I don't think I think that is. So my wife's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 780, which interestingly. No New Testament writer, even though many of the books probably were written after that references. Um, we have it on um, who's the guy who wrote uh, the his, church histories um, no 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 the, the church father wrote e, e, Eusebius Eusebius quotes Jerome as dating the book of Revelation at like 92 AD I believe um, so it's one of the things that's tough is to figure out how big of a deal how much to make a 70 AD tying him with eschatology some eschatological views make a very big deal indeed of 7080, um, viewing virtually all of the prophecy of the book Revelation and other books as being fulfilled in 7080. 
I'm not so sure. It certainly does seem, though, that the destruction of the temple in 780 is a pretty decisive, yeah, that covenant's kaput. Um, and, I mean, you meet people today, Judaizers, people who claim to be following the law. My question is, okay, when did you go up to Jerusalem last? Tell me about your last sacrifice of an animal. Like, there's no keeping the Mosaic law without a geographic center. There's no keeping the Mosaic law without blood sacrifices. You know, where are they? And with the temple destroyed and the, the altar destroyed and all of that destroyed, any attempt to argue I'm keeping the old covenant flies out the window. And so the author of the book of Hebrews references the old covenant getting ready to be done away with while the new covenant is taking off. And so the book of Acts and some of the New Testaments written in this weird time period where according Turn to Hebrews 8. It's a, weird, it's a weird place that the book of Acts is written in. So my best guess would be the destruction of the temple is when it really terminates the Old Covenant. Because it's not as simple as the second Jesus dies on the cross, the Old Covenant comes to an end. Not according to the author of Hebrews, at least. Um, let me show you. So Hebrews 8, um, the big consistent theme of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Um, Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there'd be no occasion to find pillow for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Now, pause. You ever wonder what, how did people get up in different places where they end up baptizing babies? Or It's how you understand the old covenant and the new covenant to be similar and how you understand the old covenant and the new covenant to be different. Dissimilarity and similarity. Or the terms usually used, continuity, continues, discontinuity, Right? Well, here he's citing Jeremiah 31 is going to be a list of discontinuities, differences. So there's plenty of things that are the same. It's always been by grace. It's always been by faith. It's always been God's initiative and God's covenant. But this citation of Jeremiah 31 is how the new covenant's different, okay? Um, Not like the covenant made with their fathers. For they did not continue my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. So I was recently talking to a friend of mine who believes in baptizing infants, and I said to him, do you plan on teaching your daughter who God is? I said, yeah. I said, well, then aren't you by definition indicating she's not in the covenant? Because one of the, no, one of the distinctives, I believe, of the new covenant is everybody in the new covenant knows God. There are no people in the new covenant who don't know God. Or to put it another way, the new covenant is perfectly salvific. There are no new covenant members who perish. Um, in Israel, you brought into the covenant of Moses by circumcision, and you could go to hell. That's why... Um, God refers to Israel as his adulterous wife. She's a wife by covenant. They're in the covenant by virtue of circumcision, but if they're being faithless in the covenant, they're going to be damned. They're going to be cursed. Um, And so one of the big distinctions, if you go online, you can watch a debate between James White and Doug Wilson, and and I think just James White 
beats Doug Wilson about the head with Hebrews 8, saying, isn't this one of the ways the covenant's different? They shall all know me. There aren't any people in the new covenant who don't know the Lord. Or the new covenant is only made up of those people who are regenerate, born again, believing, right? Okay, that's a whole other side thing. I really want to get to verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And the point simply being, once you announce there's going to be a new covenant, guess what you've told? The old covenant isn't going to get us all the way there. The very fact that there's a new one, it's just like whenever iPhone announces like the iPhone 18, guess what just became obsolete? The iPhone 17, right? At least in principle, it'll still work for now, but eventually they're going to stop updating it and stop servicing it, and you've got to get the next model. So in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he's not quite ready to speak of the old covenant as having disappeared. Um, And what I think is going on is this. One of the distinctions between the new covenant and the old covenant is, and I base this off of Hebrews 11 primarily, the content of what you had to believe under the old covenant appears to be much broader than the content under the new covenant. What I mean is you go to Hebrews 11 and you, you cite their faith, and they're believing a lot of different promises of God. Now, what I think is the same in every instance is God speaks, man responds in faith. So uh, Joseph says, hey, when you leave here in 400 years, you better take your, my bones with you. That's what the author of Hebrews cites as Joseph's like big moment of faith. Why? Because who had taken him in? Who had blessed him? Who had rewarded him? Who had been kind to him? Egypt. What did his natural family do? They sold him into slavery, pretended he died. But... God made promises to my father's father, Abraham, right? My great-grandfather, Abraham. And I'm trusting in those promises. So I want my alignment, my, my commitment is to my family group, even though they betrayed me, even though they horribly mistreated me. And so I don't want to wake up in the resurrection in Egypt. I want to wake up in the resurrection in the promised land. You take my bones, you bury them there. He's responding in faith to one of God's promises. Not a promise about a Messiah necessarily. You know, by faith, um, Abraham offered up Isaac. So God says something in the Old Covenant. People respond to God's revelation, verbal revelation in faith. And it seems as though, as best as I can harmonize all the examples in Hebrews 11, God justifies them for that. Under the New Covenant, you can't just believe any old truths that God says. You have to believe specific truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? So Jesus can say, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. First John can say, whoever confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, this is the spirit of God. Whoever denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there are much, I think, narrower. The gospel is a set of a chunk of information, propositions, truth claims that must be received and believed without variance. That exclusivity of the message seems to be a bit broader under the Old Covenant. It was always faith. It was always faith in responding to what God said, not what you just happen to think about. But I don't see the narrowness that you see in the New Covenant. So the question then, if I'm right, is at what point does belief in Jesus become essential and not just belief that God will send his Messiah? Right? I mean, because that's what the Jews were trusting. And they were the Jews of Jesus' day who were regenerate, like Zechariah, um, in the temple, right? They, they were believing God was going to send his Messiah, and they were reading the Old Testament, and they were justified by faith. And they didn't have faith in Jesus yet. John the Baptist didn't even know he was going ahead to baptize for. Even though he's Jesus' cousin, God has to tell him, the one that you see the dove descend on, he's the one. And John's out there preaching. 
at what point was it necessary to believe in Jesus? John, Paul, turn to Acts 19. Paul runs into some chaps in Acts 19 who somehow missed the message. They got the first part of the message. They went out and they were baptized by John in a baptism of repentance. And then, who knows why, they never got around to see John say, and that's him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They heard the first part, right? And so in Acts 19, as it happened there, um, that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. I don't think these guys were unsaved before this happened. I think what you're seeing instead is the transfer of covenants. It's the same thing you see in Acts 2. It's the same thing you see with Cornelius, who's defined as a God-fearer. I think these are all people in right relationships with God. You're seeing here a bunch of guys going from being old covenant saints to being new covenant saints. And the, and the Holy Spirit being given is a unique blessing of the new covenant. Um, so if they went out in the wilderness and they heard John's message and they responded to John's message in faith and were baptized in repentance, I think they're good. I think they're justified under the old covenant. John was the greatest preacher of the old covenant. Remember Jesus saying, whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. No one's been greater than John. He's the greatest Old Testament prophet. And the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. That's a whole lot of information. I start. There are questions on any of that. Okay, you guys are just looking at me. Yeah. Well, so the question is, if you're just, so let me, let me take it a bit further. Let's just say you're an Israelite living out somewhere in, in the Roman Empire. And you don't even know about all this stuff that's going on in Jerusalem. At what point is it illegitimate for you to respond? You're looking for the Messiah. You're hoping the Messiah. You're trusting God's word. At what point is like, that's not enough, man. Because we wouldn't say Jews today looking for the Messiah to come are justified. We would not say that. So in Hebrews 8, apparently it's getting ready to get done with. Now, most, a lot of people look at, and I think it's a fair conclusion, you know, the destruction of the temple is a pretty, pretty good place. If you could draw a line, I'd draw a line there. Because at that point, clearly, the old covenant's kaput. The wheels are off the van. You know, it's just, it's just, it's not working anymore, right? So, so, but even that's just a deduction on my part. Like, I can't be dogmatic on that. It makes a lot of sense. Before. Before the destruction. Revelation is the one that I think was written afterwards. Yes. Oh, no, mic- microphone, microphone, microphone. Our 12 yeah. podcast listeners are intently wanting to hear what you have to say. Oh, back I've got one question. Okay. Um, on the Hebrews 8.10, um, where it says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Yes. I mean, does that, inc- I mean, in a way it sounds like it's kind of specific versus... Us as well? Oh, yeah. The covenant that we get, we only get because Israel rejected it. So, Jesus, so no. This is, the new covenant was first meant to be offered to Israel. Right? It's only when Israel's like, yeah, we don't want that, that Jesus says, your house is left bereft. 
And from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. The kingdom of God will be taken and given to an ethnoi bearing its fruits. So the, the, the logic is we get what was offered to them. Israel, by and large, rejects their Messiah and their covenant. And then the wild olive branches get grafted in. Or the analogy I've used, it's like the homeborn son due to his rebellion gets kicked out and we're like street urchin homeless kids and we get to live in their room and play with his Xbox and use his posters. Like we get all the blessings, right, that were given to them. Um, we get to enjoy those blessings. But absolutely, in the Old Testament, it's the new covenant he's making with the house of Israel. Absolutely. Um, and they, they were offered it, I believe, first. So, I mean, it's, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, but in Jesus' ministry, remember the, the woman who comes up and is this, this is Syrophoenician who says, uh, even the dogs at the table scraps? Jesus is like, no, I need to go to the Israelites first. Um, even though Jesus does have some ministry to the Gentiles, Jesus is very clearly focusing on Israel, first and foremost, for the priority. Um, so that, no, it's, but Jeremiah is absolutely to the house of Israel, absolutely. How Paul went. Yes, absolutely. Paul was always giving them the first swing at the ball. Sports analogy. Nailed it. Okay. Um, I know. Tell them about it. Okay. Yes. Who's next? Oh, so, Renee. Um, yeah. I always thought the new covenant was um, manifest when the curtain was torn in two. Oh, I think the new covenant is inaug- it's operative at that point. Okay. I think the new covenant, really, you probably want to put it to Acts when the blessings come out. I used, if you go back, if you want to listen to me talk about this, which you probably don't, but if you wanted to listen to me talk about this more at length, there's a message on the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our archive. I use this analogy. When, if you guys, who here has lived around the differing upgrades of internet? Where first you had dial-up, then you had satellite, <laughs> then you had cable, right? Um, and so... This is, in one sense, a grossly simplistic, and uh, I don't want to be blasphemous way of thinking about it. I don't think it's blasphemous, but think of the covenants as having benefits packages. That's the part that sounds really lame, a benefits package. And there's a benefits package under the old covenant. It's great. You get peace with God. And, and even though the Spirit's not dwelling in you, there's clearly some working of the Spirit with the people of God. Jesus talks about the Spirit who is with you and will be in you. So it's not as though the Holy Spirit is having no ministry with the old covenant saints, but it's a radically different ministry than the new covenant. Um, And yet the new covenant has bigger blessings, greater blessings, more blessings, right? And so there are people who are justified by God through faith. And one of the things that are always the same is God, you're responding to what God has said in faith. That's always been, Paul makes it clear. Here's a line of continuity. Abraham believed God was justified, counted him as righteousness, and that hasn't changed. And so... The second Jesus' death on the cross is accomplished and that the temple veil is split, in one sense, the, the blessings of the new covenant, that pack, the benefits package, is available. We see it coming in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descends on, on them and then the crowds. And you're seeing in the book of Acts that benefits package spread out. In fact, a lot of what you're seeing are not conversions. I think, like, look at Cornelius. So Cornelius... His prayers have gone up as a memorial before God. He's a, he's a God-fearer, which as best as we can tell is the, the technical term for a proselyte. He's a Gentile convert to, to Israel, I believe. How else are his prayers pleasing to God? And instead, what I think you're seeing is the equivalent of watching someone go from dial-up to high-speed Internet. He, and the gospel comes to him, and he believes, and the spirit falls on. Same thing with the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, think about it. Here's a guy who's a proselyte. 
He's got a scroll of Isaiah. He's going up to Jerusalem to keep a feast. This is a proselyte. This is a half Jew, in other words. And that's part of the movement you see is who gets, who, where's the gospel gone to first after, the, after um, the, the Israel? Is the God-fearers, those Gentiles who have yoked themselves with Israel. Then you get the half-Jews, the Samaritans, and you get the Ethiopian eunuch, who's, there actually is genetic conclusion that there is um, black Israelites. There's a long-held theory that Solomon and the Queen of Sheba had something or other. But it's possible he's part of that. Whether or not that's the case, he's, he's, he's clearly a, a proselyte. He's going up to keep the feast. He's Jewish in that sense. And then the gospel goes out to the full-bore Gentiles. So you see it sort of moving out in stages out. Um, so your question. So, yes, the, the new covenant takes off and is fully functioning, full benefits from Jesus' death, certainly from Acts 2. Certainly from Acts 2, uh, after the ascension. Somewhere between the death and the ascension, right? It's, it's done. But just because it's taken off and cruising at, at cruising altitude, the old covenant, according to Hebrews 8, is getting ready to tank out, but it hasn't tanked out yet. And what I'm getting at is, if you were just a Jewish family living in, like, Asia Minor, and you didn't know anything about anything going on in Jerusalem, at what point is, I have the Torah, I believe God, I'm good. At what point is that not sufficient anymore? Like, was it like... 6.03 on Friday night? No. It, it, I, there seems a deduction. The deduction I'd make is something like the temple's destruction. It's clear this covenant, the Mosaic law ain't working anymore, folks. Um, and certainly nobody could hear the new covenant message and reject it. I mean, every, everywhere we see, they hear it and immediately they're believing, um, which is why I don't think you're seeing Cornelius's or these guys in Acts 19 or the Ethiopian eunuch's sal- justification. They're entering into a right relationship with God. Rather, I think what we're seeing is them receiving the benefits of the new covenant. They're being transferred from one covenant to another, I think. And I think that helps explain some of the uh, peculiarities to the book of Acts that some of our charismatic friends jump on. Um, because the, the analogy I use is if you're watching internet upgrades, right? If you're watching it like in Martinsdale and it's dial-up and I, You'd conclude, here's how someone gets internet. First you get dial-up, and then after a while, someone comes to your house, and they put a satellite thing in your house, and then you get high-speed internet. Well, no, nowadays people just go straight to high-speed internet, right? It's not this two-step experience. And I, and I think a lot of what I disagree with, what I'd view as wrong in some of this holiness movement stuff, is you get saved, and later on you get baptized in the Spirit, and you get... I'm like, well, that happened in Acts, certainly. People who are Old Covenant saints transition into the new covenant but that's not how people get saved today it's just like today you don't start with dial-up and then you get your satellite dish and then get your cable you just go straight to cable if they deliver that out to my house you would um but they don't if we had our driveway on delaware we could get high-speed cable yep kid you not my wife's called them every year because we get these annoying flyers, and it's like they taunt us. Like, you could have high-speed internet for 50 bucks. And you're like, no. No, no. It's, it's, it's a joy. Physician, <laughs> heal thyself. Well done, sir. Yes. Yes. It's only every time we get this ad, you get your hopes get up. And you're like, oh, are they finally here? No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We're going to be the... We're going to be the last people they get to because they've, there's only like three more people sales down our street. <laughs> they run out of street, right? Okay. Um, other questions? We've got 10 minutes. Yes.
Mr. Christopherson. Is it all right if I get back to James? Yes, you can get back to James. <laughs> okay. uh, this was about wisdom this morning. It yeah. says, if you lack wisdom, ask God and it will be given to you. Yes, sir. Is there a danger of expanding that to beyond wisdom? I mean, there are other Bible passages that deal with prayer and asking about other things. This one seems specific to wisdom. Absolutely. Because That's, not you can't say, if you like anything, God will give it to you. Right, right. No, and if we limit it to James, part of what I was trying to define it as is the, the ability to think and act rightly, and in the context of James, under trial. I mean, I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even in James include, I want to understand this passage of the Bible. I mean, I'm, I'm studying the Bible and trying to preach, and Lord, help me understand this. I got to teach on it next week. Um, I don't think that's even within James's scope. I think given the tight grammar of his, um, it's like shingles. The last word of the sentence starts the next word. So it, it's, it is the grammatically most tight section of the book. So we're taught, we're in the same discussion, in other words. I need to count this joy because I know the test of my faith produces endurance. And then I let endurance yield its perfect work, so I'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if I'm lacking, I mean, so that's partly why the blank is he's envisioning the, the, um, the contingency, but what happens if you're in a trial, you're over your head, and you're not yet that mature, complete person you're envisioning? Well, then you ask for wisdom. And in the context, it's wisdom to know how to deal with that trial. So I'd say this, the, the promise in James is specifically if you lack the wisdom to rejoice and trust God under a President Biden presidency, ask God for wisdom. He'll give it to you so you can do that. And I think the, the probably more gender-inclusive versions would say it would be given to them. Right. No, no, a masculine, no, a masculine singular, just like James's brothers. Clearly, the implication is brothers and sisters. It's the way you'd say it. We, we speak in the third person of a hypothetical him, and we clearly mean him or her or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that would be more like what I'd be saying. It's like if you're having something difficult, and you're like, Lord, I don't know how to rejoice in this. It just seems bad and ugly to me. That'd be precise. I'd say, that's what he's talking about. Ask for wisdom. Um, that'd be the most direct fit in my mind. Who's next? Got another hand? Oh, Matthew. So this might be, I don't, I'm not even sure quite how to phrase this question. Um, is God doesn't, uh, you know, warns against being double-minded. Yes. What does double-minded look like? How can we see if we're being double-minded in our thoughts and actions? Is it something that, like, we're more consciously aware of or, like, like I'm actively doing bad things and still asking God for help and I realize I'm doing that? Or it can be more insidious than that, you think? How does, well, it, how does it look, rather, I guess, would be the better question. If, when it's full-grown, it's two separate sets of intentions, plans, purposes, and values. I mean, full-blown, it really is trying to serve two masters. In its earlier stages, it may be harder to root out. I think that's partly why Jesus and James will warn about serving two masters and the impossibility, and a good tree can't bear bad fruit. Well, let's be honest. Good trees sometimes do for a little bit bear some bad fruit for a while, right? Ultimately... It has to resolve. Ultimately, it can't endure a fig tree bearing thorns. It can't work, right? Um, so the Psalms have examples of prayer. Search me, O Lord. Show me if there's some devious way in me, right? And so there is a sense in which we could be self-deceived. James, go to James 4. 3. 
You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. I'm not sure if I can always tell my motives. Right? Um, so that's something to consider. You pray for something and, and you don't get it. One of the things to consider is, is it possible that I really just wanted that because I wanted it for my own reasons? And that can be tough when it's good things. You know, women wanting children. That's a good thing, right? Could you want a child for the wrong reason? You could, right? People wanting a job. Well, is it good to want a job? Yeah, but you also might want this job because it would bring a certain amount of glory, and I could have a certain amount of pride in this. I mean, my motives are really mixed on just about anything. Even working on a sermon, right? Like, I want to please God, but I want you guys to think I'm smart and did a good job, right? So I don't know if I can always tell my motives in that sense. I do think that by the time you get to the condemnation James is talking about, and this is very much the Jewish thinking of two roads, it's become clear. I don't think the, the warnings and your unstableness and you're like a wave is for the baby stages. I think it's, he'll get to, it, it's clear you're a double-minded person. So think of the split. There might be a crack forming, but by the time these condemnations come, I think it's pretty well developed. He talks in on chapter one, when sin is full grown, it brings forth death, right? So, the early stages might be hard to diagnose. Is this just normal level temptation and struggle, or is this the beginning of the uh, of of spiritual? What did I call it? Spiritual. Uh, what was that place in Washington? The the chaz spiritual chaz. That's what I call it. Spiritual chaz, right? This zone's off limits for the risen Lord. It's mine. It's Jeremy Land, right? And no, if you and I know people, they they try to live that way where they've got like spiritual chaz going on, and like I give God all of this, but this is my zone. Like, yeah, it's not going to work out that well. And sometimes it works out with you know the good shepherd comes and he whacks him in the head with his rod, and they oh that was sorry about that. Or other times they double down and it's like oh wow, you know you're really trying to serve two masters. You're truly trying to do both. James is telling us what the end result of that is, right? which is why he introduces it here. I mean, because he introduces the concept of double-mindedness here, and then he comes back to it in four, where it's, it's now, it's time to repent, gnash your teeth, weep. And mo- there's still grace, there's still hope. It's just a very different prescription. Get broken. Get humble, fall on your face, cry out for help is the prescription for that. And I think we're dealing with the, the, the fully-orbed disease, full-grown with its fruits. Now, I certainly think it's a good idea to be mindful of that double-mindedness. If you ever catch yourself planning on sinning and counting on God's forgiveness for it, you're not in a good place. <laughs> I mean, and that's partly why I was trying to show those passages in Deuteronomy and Ezekiel, because this is no new teaching in the Bible, right? Um, and that sort of playing games. Uh, let me, I know it's time. I'm going to, Jeremiah 3, we'll call it quits here. This is amazing. Jeremiah 3 is absolutely jaw-droppingly amazing. Or is it six? Jeremiah six. Sorry, Jeremiah six. We'll call it quits when we do this. You got to read this. This is fantastic. Okay. Absolutely amazing. Um, or is it three? Maybe it was three. It's three. Okay, here we go. Jeremiah three, six. Jeremiah three, six. There we go. Okay. Now look at this. This is amazing. The Lord said to me in the day of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? Now, you're going to see Israel, and you're going to see Judah. Israel, the ten northern tribes, who Shalmaneser V comes and takes away, right? They eventually become the Samaritans. Their leftovers intermarry into the Samaritans. Have you seen what that faithless one did, Israel? She went up in every high hill, under every green tree, and there she played the whore. 
And I thought, after she's done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. So, northern ten tribes, they go off, they worship other gods, they don't return, and they're never heard from again. Um, she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah, two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithful in Israel, I'd sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah, now look at this, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Look at verse 11. Who's more righteous? The Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself to be more righteous than treacherous Judah. Israel doesn't pretend to worship God. She goes off a horn, never comes back. Judah does the same thing and then shows up, you know, for Passover. Shows up to the temple. And God, and this is amazing. Faithless Israel is more righteous than Judah. Because at least she's not a hypocrite. Right? So that's, this is, I mean, through and through in Scripture, there it is. Now, the, the divi- divisions of the heart, I'd go to something like Psalm 19, Psalm 139, test me, try me, see if there's any grievous way. We should be praying that all the time. But by the time you're reaching these condemnations, I think it's pretty clear like, like that you've got the spiritual chaz going on. Um, so anyway, that's it. We'll collect a break for today. God speed. God bless. Pray for me tonight. Thank you. I love that. I love that term. Spiritual chaz. Home. Uh, I think you can have